Hello, I am The Nihilist, and welcome to my Album of the Month Club, Episode 2. Every month this year, 2023, I'm going to be uploading a different album from my back catalogue of music that I've produced over the last 20-odd years to all the major platforms, including Spotify. And I'm also doing this, a companion podcast series that I've called Liner Notes, where I'm going to talk all sorts of rubbish about the music that I've made and my own personal history, just to give you a bit of background as to where all this music came from. And this being February, the album that I'm putting up on the platforms and on Spotify this month is the first album release that I ever really did. I know that there's one album already up there, which is called Lo-Fi Gold. That album is a compilation, a collection of um, various different kind of demos and bedroom recordings and stuff that I did up to the year about 2003. But for this episode two, I'm concentrating on my first proper album release, which is from about 2004, and it's called And Out of Nowhere. If I had to describe And Out of Nowhere in a nutshell, I would use the term synth rock. That's what I used to describe this music as back in the day. Some people might agree, some people might disagree, but I kind of like that term, so I stuck with it. It goes back to my own take on the music that I love and the music that I seek to produce and to put out into the world, which is kind of split into two different modes, really. There's a lot of dance music that I produce, which is, I try and make that like fairly accessible. I would even say poppy, some kind of like a lot of dance pop that I've produced over the years. But the other side of the music that I make, um, specifically the music that I have been making in the past under the pseudonym The Nihilist, has got more to do with my noise rock side and my love of noise, distortion, feedback, uh, hot mixing where things are in the red, um, and my teenage fixation on a couple of bands, really. The first one being Sonic Youth, who were a big influence on me when I discovered them. I discovered them pretty much at the same time as Nirvana. So Nirvana kind of opened the floodgates when you're a young teenage person and Nirvana were in the charts. It was pretty cool if you're into that kind of thing. But the band that I discovered very quickly after that, that kind of, um, even though I love Nirvana, I always I always did and I always will. And I loved Kurt Cobain in particular. Sonic Youth were the band that I kind of found in the slipstream of Nirvana getting into the public consciousness. And I discovered them through my older brother who had a cassette copy of their 1990 album Goo. And I rinsed that album when I was a teenager. I used to listen to that on my headphones all the time. And then in 1992, Sonic Youth brought out Dirty, which post-Nirvana was kind of them being a bit more accessible and had some of their biggest hits on it, including the song Youth Against Fascism, which I covered directly on And Out of Nowhere.
quite funny looking back on this stuff and listening back to it now and thinking back to where I was when I made it. For the sake of brevity for these podcasts, I'm going to um, ask myself a couple of questions along the way to get the information out in a nice digestible form for you, the listeners. The first question I'm going to ask is, who am I? Who was I? Sorry, because this is a long time ago now. Who was I and where was I? The reason that I said that this is funny listening back to it for me is because at this point when I was making a lot of this music, I hadn't actually settled on the the nihilist pseudonym and persona. It was something that was actually suggested to me by a friend from uh, university back in the day who said that I should produce under the name The Nihilist, which I really liked anyway, and I'd kind of been thinking about that. And also, it's a reference to the Coen Brothers film The Big Lebowski, when um, there's a German band who are also quasi-terrorists, I believe, and they describe themselves as The Nihilists. So that was how I landed on the name The Nihilist, which is the name I've been using and plugging mostly for the last 20-odd years for my own productions. But like I mentioned before, my production was always split into two modes. There was more accessible dance music, and there was noisier kind of noise rock stuff. And even though both of them are based in, like, you know, fairly traditional songwriting or fairly traditional modes of producing dance music, with this stuff... It's all songs, even though it's very noisy. I still concentrated on having, you know, songs with verses and choruses and stuff like that. Yeah, your city's on fire by another religious liar. Back at And so, who was I? Well, at this point in my life, when I was making And Out of Nowhere, and I wasn't specifically making And Out of Nowhere, I was just making, working on a lot of music, a lot of different things that I had going on in my head. I, I'm always, I've always loved loads of different kinds of music. So when it came to making music, it took me quite a while to actually settle into what would be the kind of signature things that I did. So around this period, I was making loads of different stuff. But when it came to putting stuff together to put out an album... I managed to get a bunch of tracks that kind of all inhabit roughly the same sound world or the same aesthetic. And it's very noisy. There's a lot of feedback on there. The album, in fact, starts with a big swoop of feedback that I managed to produce by wiring a small little, uh, I think it was a four-channel mixing desk. And I took the outputs of the mixing desk, put them through a guitar pedal, and then put them back into a channel of the mixing desk. So it's literally just feeding back upon itself through a a distortion pedal, which I still have to this day, I must say. It's uh, one of my favorite pedals ever. I found it in a bin outside the place that I was living in Glasgow. It had been rained on for a few days. I think it had been there for a while, and it was already in really tatty condition. It's a bright pink um, effects pedal called Super Distortion. It's a bit broken now. I need to get um, a new battery little pad that the battery clips onto to get it to power up. But it was incredible because it like because it had been out in the rain so much, it was like kind of added this own kind of gate compression to it where the sound would just clip dead once the kind of distortion had been done. So I rinsed that pedal. That's a lot of where the distortion sounds on Unknown and Out of Nowhere are coming from. Uh, Like I mentioned, I was living in Glasgow at the time. I'll get into that a bit later. Um, I currently live in Manchester stroke Salford. I've been here for over a decade. 
Um, but I also lived in Glasgow for a very long time and it was very formative and influential on my growth as a human being and like my development as an adult, but also very, very influential on my music and my music tastes and also my music production and how I learned to do all that and the skills that I've gained through doing that stuff for the last couple of decades. Um, I was living on, at the time that I was making most of these tunes, I was living on Renfrew Street, which is in Garnet Hill, which is very close to the Glasgow School of Art. And if anybody has visited Glasgow, gone for a night out, you might have found yourself at the Glasgow School of Art, which is a very creative place full of really cool, was anyway, 20 years ago, um, full of really cool young people who all had creative talents and were putting it out there. And the nice thing about Glasgow at that time, it was very, it wasn't... Um, it was kind of an un un oh, how to describe it an unheralded place. It was very. It's still, as far as I'm aware, haven't been back in a while, but it's still a very poor working class city. So it was very cheap for people to live there. So and it had the art school, which is one of the most famous art schools in the world still. Um, so there were a lot of young artists who had graduated from the Glasgow School of Art and just decided to stay and live in Glasgow because it was very cheap. There was a very flourishing, great art scene there in and of itself. There's an amazing music scene. It's one of the best music cities in the UK, in my opinion. And it was just a really nice, creative place to live at the time. Living in Glasgow had a massive effect on me. I first moved to Glasgow to study film there, but when I got there, I realised that the music scene was so incredible. I got much more involved in the music creation and consuming side of my life and my passions than I did in the film. And I lived in... I'm not going to tell you how long I lived in Glasgow for, only to say that I've lived for the same amount of time now that I've been in Manchester and Salford that I lived in Glasgow. So in part, I feel... In a way, I feel part Scottish, to be honest, because I did so much of my growing up and my development and my formation as an artist and specifically as the nihilist in Glasgow. And to me, this album is very, very Glasgow. It's my young, angry Glasgow man album. <laughs> oh, I was going out this time. It was a Sunday night. Where can I go on a Sunday? Somewhere that'll make me feel alright. Well, I went down Jamaica Street and I saw a long queue. When I heard that thumping beat, uh, I knew what I could do. Uh, you don't have to be the Beatles. You don't have to be. You don't even have to take smack Just give it a go Because Optimo is crazy It's all I've ever known If you're out on a Sunday You go to Optimo Isn't that right? Yeah, where else do you go on a Sunday night? Yes, I was an angry young man. Um, going to set some context as to what was going on in the world at this point when I was making this music and why some of it is so vitriolic. Um, 
one of the songs, the first song of the album, actually, the one that starts off with a big swoosh of feedback that is designed to either suck you in or to put you right off because I didn't want to take prisoners with this. I wanted to make a statement. And listening back to it, I think I have. But the context of where that statement was coming from, that song is called The New Wave of the Same Old, and it was originally called The New Wave of the Same Old Shit. And that was very much what I felt was happening in basically pop music and specifically indie rock music at that time, around the turn of this new millennium. In fact, I was going to say century, but it was a new millennium. So from the years 1999 to about when I was kind of done with this kind of stuff from about 2004, what was getting really popular in the music press and in youth culture at the time um, was basically just kind of twinky, skinny young boys on smack playing kind of really not very good guitar music, in my opinion. So I'm talking about bands like um, the Libertines. I absolutely hated them. I hated what they stood for. I hated the sound of them. I didn't like the circus that evolved around the two singers and that how obviously there was some kind of drug dependency problem going on there with Pete Doherty that wasn't being addressed in terms of making him healthy. It was only being used to sell records, and I found it really gross. I thought that these records wouldn't stand on their own two feet anyway because they just really weren't that good. And I'm sorry if anybody listening to this has a really soft spot for the Libertines. I don't deny that, like, you know, as a young person, I don't like, I'm not going to fall out with anyone who tells me that they still love the Libertines. I mean, to each their own. But to me, I was a bit too old for that. I'd, I was, you know, I was in my early 20s with this point, And I wasn't particularly looking for more skinny young men on heroin playing jangly guitars to, you know, develop my identity around. I'd found that years earlier. So a lot of the vitriol that I was spewing in this album culturally had to do with the kind of, I don't know, does that thing even have a name now? We'd come out the arse end of Britpop by this point, and I also hated Britpop. I hated what that stood for. What I found really frustrating about Britpop is that the best actual British pop music was not that kind of retrospective, let's all herald the 60s kind of crap. It was The Prodigy and dance music and even pop music, like straight up pop music, like the Spice Girls who were undeniably one of the best British pop bands ever. Like, that's real pop. But Britpop was just this kind of throwback, backwards-looking, insular, fetishistic, boring scene to me. And I felt that the whole thing that came around in the early noughties with, like, the Libertines and the Strokes and that kind of, like, young skinny twinks on smack jangling guitars... It just really bored me, especially when there was so much good music out there that really, I felt, deserved more and wasn't getting covered. It was also post 9-11 when all this was going on. So politically, it was also a very, very charged time, even though it felt kind of, oh, there was a lot of this stuff that you couldn't say in public because pro-Americanism had become so great and so overwhelming that you couldn't really criticize America for fear of being seen as being you know, like some kind of terrorist or a terrorist sympathiser. And this is around the time that um, Tony Blair took the UK to war in Iraq. And there was massive public demonstrations, like literally millions of people went out onto the street to demonstrate those wars that nobody in the public, none of the public wanted to, to do those wars. Nobody wanted to go to war with Iraq at that point. Iraq hadn't even been involved in the Twin Towers 
uh, attacks as far as anyone was aware and I think it's fairly safe to say to this day Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with that so it was very obviously a political agenda that was getting played out and the public didn't didn't care for it we didn't want to see British soldiers getting sent off to to Iraq and blown up for this thing that had nothing to do with 9-11. So there was a lot of disenchantment going on with particularly people of my age who this was the first kind of real chance that we'd see, chance we'd had to see politics directly going up, directly opposing what we wanted to happen. And the groundswell, those marches that people went on, it was about 2003, those anti-war marches that people went on, and I remember it, I still remember it very, very well in Glasgow, the one that we went on. It was so busy. And there was literally every niche community was represented. It wasn't a middle-class thing. Oh, let's go and have a, a nice little demo, which, you know, no shade to people who do that. That's fine. This was much more than that. You saw loads of working-class people. You saw loads of... Um, they are the young, not always male, but the kind of young men wearing uh, tracksuits kind of thing, which, you know, this is not a nice word, but they get called chavs. But also in Glasgow, this is a particular word for that kind of person, and it's called neds. Um, there was loads of them there. There's loads of like young guys in tracksuits like protesting this thing. Maybe they thought it was just like a fun day out to have. But actually, people who turned up were quite serious. They're like, no, we don't want a bloody war. What are you doing? Um, so a lot of that energy from that period is reflected in the music that was making. A lot of like disenchantment, unhappiness, anger, um, kind of kicking against the pricks kind of vibe. Just that angry young man stuff that I felt wasn't being represented in the music of the time. It was all this very safe drug druggy, fake, gay, um, like the Libertines kind of stuff. They're just the band that sums it all up for me, who had no political aspirations whatever, whatsoever. And yet the music press would always talk about like the great po like political statement bands of the time, yet they weren't reflecting that in what was actually going on in the popular music that was getting hyped up at the time, had so little politics in it. And I wanted to make music that directly referenced that. I grew up listening to bands like, beyond the rock music that I was listening to, it was like Public Enemy were massive. Ice Cube, I love that. It's like, some of that gangster rap is not necessarily overtly political, but there's political messaging in it because it's, it's impossible to document that life and not talk about the politics of how those people ended up there. So gangster rap, um, like I said, Public Enemy, there was a British rap band called Fundamental who were Asian. They were kind of like an Asian-British kind of like, um, like Public Enemy. You, even bands like Corner Shop, who, you know, went on to have, like, big hits later on. But when they first started, they were very political in terms of... They called their band Corner Shop, and they were making open commentary on the depiction of Asian people in British culture and criticising that. That was... Like, and Riot Girl, I have to mention Riot Girl, especially the British Riot Girl bands like Huggy Bear. I grew up as a young teenager, and Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth did a song called Youth Against Fucking Fascism. And I grew up listening to all this great political music. And when it came to a period of time that we needed music to be talking about politics, that was kind of ripped away from us. And it was replaced with, like I keep saying, these young skinny boy men addicted to heroin, jangling guitars who couldn't really sing very well. And it really pissed me off. Yeah. 
I look back at pictures of myself from this period and, you know, I have to kind of stifle a, a groan mixed with a laugh. Um, I, to kind of hammer home the political aspect point, I worked with a good friend of mine who was also my flatmate at the time called Kepa Rasmussen. And he d did a lot of, like, just because he was interested in photography and I was like, babe, take pictures of me, I'll pose for you. So he did a lot and he was great at helping me out. Um, to create like just imagery to put around the nihilist stuff um, and looking at the pictures now one of the um, kind of aesthetics that I adopted which is uh, kind of questionable now I guess I'm older and I can admit that but I'm also not going to kind of like pretend it didn't happen um, yeah the aesthetic was that of basically kind of like a communist dictator um, yeah, I did a series of photos that were shot on a bridge very near to where we lived on Renfrew Street and Kepa was underneath and I was on the bridge and I was wearing um, kind of Russian looking garb and was made to look like I was giving a speech to lots of people. And to me, the reason I did that, um, it was overtly political. It was just to go like, you know, we are living in an age where somebody has flown a series of jumbo jets into buildings. But what culture is telling us is this kind of like vacuous, oh, you know, just be in London and like take loads of drugs or, you know, this was also like near the birth, but also really, really peak time of that era of reality television. And also kind of American celebrity culture was like at its apex around this time as well. So modern culture wasn't talking about the reality of what was going on in the world. Which now that I'm 20 years later, I realize is probably pretty much always the case. And it's only when you look back on culture that you can begin to really politicize it and get into the nitty gritty of what was going on. I feel like we're living in a very, very similar, but probably even worse time now where politics is massively affecting people's lives, specifically the, the economy and the, um, you know, the cost of living crisis. But is is popular culture is mainstream culture reflecting that no not at all it's still selling us the same ideals of you know oh try and get famous try and get rich live an easy life don't talk about that stuff it's that little meme of the dog sat in a house that's on fire that is the vibe of what i was doing back then being a bit i want to, i'm always going to be very tongue-in-cheek because being irish it's fairly impossible for Irish people to be 100% serious about something, even stuff like the Great Famine that we went through and the dispossession and the millions of people dying. You know, we still crack jokes about that stuff because that's how we cope with it. So for me, there's always a tongue-in-cheek aspect to what I do. So that Russian communist totalitarian look that I was going with, you know, it's maybe a bit cringy, I admit, but it served a purpose and, you know, as an artist, I can give you a very good reason as to why I did it. And I will say I still have great memories of that time in my life and creating this music and that art with my friend Keba and also some other folks. Um, this was a time in my life where I ended up having a studio with Keba in an, a shared artist space, a kind of homegrown DIY taken over warehouse, multi-level warehouse space in the south side of Glasgow, just over the river from Jamaica Street, from the city centre, that we called the Chateau. I had a, it was, yeah, 
I'm going to, I'll do something about the Chateau at some point, something much more in-depth than what I want to talk about here, because I could talk about the Chateau for hours and the stuff that we got up to and the amazing people that were there and the artwork that we created and the parties we threw and the fashion and the music and the sculpture and the art and everything that came out of that space. But for now, I'll just keep it simple and say that one of the reasons, apart from it being my... I didn't go to art school. I went to study film and I ended up getting just a general arts degree, whereas most of the people in my life had probably been to the Glasgow School of Art, actually. A lot of people actually came from the same film course that I was on. There was a lot of talented musicians that I worked with on that as well. But I didn't go to art school, so I didn't have a chance to really, like, experience the artistic life in that way of, like, having a studio and having space to create stuff in that you can physically create or to set up music equipment and do that. And the Chateau was a space where I was able to try that for the first time and realize that this is an incredibly important thing to me and I need to have this kind of studio creative spaces in my life. And I have had since then all the time. I've always had, if it's either been in the house or now currently working at Islington Mill, I've got a studio and it's a very important thing to me. But the Chateau is where I learned that, that that was an important thing that I needed in my life. But the other exciting thing about the Chateau was that the Chateau was discovered as a building and founded as a community and a space for artistic expression by the band Franz Ferdinand. Um, specifically Alex Pranos and Nick, I think, were the two members, or maybe Paul. Um, the story is that they were um, silly boys. They were on the railway tracks late night in Glasgow having a little wee mad adventure. Um, and they spotted this derelict building, but it's really, really close to the city centre. So they found out who um, ran the building, which was the old man who ran the corner shop downstairs on the ground floor. And they asked him if they could move in, some of their friends could move in. And he said yes. So Franz Ferdinand apparently moved into, I believe they moved into the top floor, to the sixth floor. They set up a rehearsal space there. And then they started bringing their friends from art school into the building to populate the rest of it. Now, I wasn't part of that scene. I wasn't part of that crew. But, and by the time that I got to have a studio space within the Chateau, Franz Ferdinand had en masse moved to London because from the get-go, even though, like, I love Franz Ferdinand, they're great and they're nice people and stuff, but from the get-go, they were always going to be a, 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 a working band, like, popular, selling records, touring constantly, not just a kind of, like, bedroom concern or a hobby. From the get-go, even from when hiring the rhythm section to be in the band by Alex and Nick, they were always kind of like, this is going to be a real thing. We're going to get signed. We're going to get in the charts. We want to sell millions of records and we want to tour the world and we want to be the coolest band. And, you know, hats off, they flipping did it. For a short while, they actually were. They, they you know, they reset culture for a bit. They came out the tail end of that um yeah, the <laughs> skinny boys on smack jangly guitar thing that I was talking about with the Libertines. But it was just really exciting to be somewhat connected to a really successful band that were like getting music in the charts. And like people who were just long-term friends with Alex would be like, oh my God, I've seen like Alex is on the cover of a magazine, blah, blah, blah. And I was hearing all this. It was a very, very exciting time for all of that stuff. And, you know, I will say that, like, you probably could lump Franz Ferdinand into the same scene as the Strokes and the Libertines. That kind of retro arch, very masculine, very pseudo-bicurious rather than gay. 
I would say, scene. But, you know, maybe it's because I kind of knew them and their friends a bit that I was a lot more soft on them. And, you know, I still play the Errol Alcan remix of Do You Wanna to this day. It's kind of one of my signature tunes. And I'm not going to knock Franz Ferdinand. They were great. And what you have to realise as well is that, like, having a band that successful coming out from such a small scene, suddenly everyone was like, oh, my God, if they can do it, we can do it. It really brought a lot of... um, a lot of creativity out of a lot of people, I think, which you could say was cynical and be a bit like, oh, they're just cashing in. But also it was these people who like, they dedicated their entire lives to their artistic product and they made it work. So there was a lot of people who saw that and respected that, and especially a lot of musicians as well. I mean, there was a lot of, there was dross, like there was stuff that was kind of like very similar to Franz Ferdinand in terms of mm, almost... I wouldn't say copycat, because the thing about Franz Ferdinand is that they were themselves part of a lineage of Scottish jangle pop. Realistically, they were. Going back to, like, Orange Juice and stuff that had come out of Edinburgh and Postcard Records in the early 80s and stuff. So there was other bands around at the time that were kind of similar and doing similar stuff. And in the slipstream of Franz Ferdinand getting into the charts, and, like, I think um, their second single got to, like, number two. I think, Take Me Out, I think, got to number two. On the slipstream of that, there was loads of attention to loads of stuff in Glasgow. And I remember one time, actually, um, there was a discussion amongst the people who were working at the Chateau um, that the NME wanted to cover Franz Ferdinand. So the people at the Chateau specifically gave the NME the wrong address for the Chateau and where it was because we didn't want people turning up crazy, intense Japanese fans of Franz Ferdinand turning up and going, oh, this is the place. We didn't want that. It was very run down and it was very, we wanted to be very private. We wanted it to self-sustain. So there was a decision made to feed the enemy the wrong address, which when the enemy came out, we looked at it and it was like, yeah, they've pointed to a different part of the city where we actually were. But there was a lot of people around Franz Ferdinand. Um, and when I say that they were tapping into a lineage of Scottish music, it's not a cynical thing. They were, it was very genuine. Like they were tapping into that postcard records thing, but just with a slightly harder edge and a slightly more up-to-date kind of thing where you can tell that these people who made Take Me Out have listened to Daft Punk records on ecstasy, probably in the subclub. So that was an influence on them that wasn't there in the early 80s. The one thing that I will say, and the thing that to me plugs this album and out of nowhere, very much it comes from my years of uh, working in the Chateau, but I do also feel that it is in the lineage of Scottish music. And the band that I think it most takes influence from and tries to repeat some of their formula, even though I'm doing it on a different set of instruments in a different way, is the Jesus and Mary chain. Like, I remember hearing the Jesus Mary Chain when I was quite young, actually, probably around the same time um, of Sonic Youth, of getting into Sonic Youth, when they brought out uh, Goo and Dirty. I remember Jesus Mary Chain had a song about, um, God, I can't remember the name of that. I should look it up, and I'll maybe leave a little gap here to insert the name. 
reverence. But yeah, it was awesome. Like, I loved it. So, and then going back further and finding, getting more and more into noise rock into that kind of like late 80s, early 90s, the pre-grunge stuff that when you're a grunge kid, you're like, well, what came before this? Like stuff like Never Understand. And so there's just like banging tunes still to this day, but everything is washed in feedback it's like it's just really noisy and it can be quite draining on your ears even though the melodies are very very accessible melodies so in a way as much as i moan about all the people trying to like cash in on the you know scottish music a scottish indie pop thing in my own way i was maybe i can admit now that i was trying to do that um but not the reference points that they necessarily were using I was taking a different stream of Scottish music, which is, you know, of the same ilk, but just a little bit different, and putting my own take on that. And my own take on that was completely influenced by one specific artist who I still love to this day, and that is Peaches. Peaches released the album The Teachers of Peaches in the year 2000, and I still have a very vivid memory of going into the Tower Records Remember that? That was there in Glasgow, uh, underneath Central Station, just off Jamaica Street. When that album had come out and looking at the double vinyl and thinking it was so cool. And I was like, who is this person? They rap explicitly about sex from a very feminist, pro-femme point of view. And I don't know if if anybody listening to this has been a long-term fan of Peaches. The thing that you have to remember is when Peaches brought out the Teachers of Peaches, um, and even up until her second album, Fatherfucker, for quite a lot of that, Peaches hid her face and didn't show her face. Um, so the album, Teachers of Peaches, doesn't, as far as I remember, it's just a picture of her pink hot pants on the cover. And then the rest of it is just like text and stuff. But it was just the coolest thing. And I didn't buy the album that day, but... Um, Somebody I knew had bought the album. I think they probably had it on CD. And I managed to get uh, a copy of it onto Minidisc. So I had the Minidisc copy of The Teachers of Peaches. And I would listen to that all the time. Because it clicked very much with me as somebody who had grown up listening to hip-hop and electronic dance music and stuff. But the politics of what Peaches was saying was just so cool and so right on and so queer before it was really what we have now is the kind of commodified version of queer in terms of not just the kind of pansexuality of it but just the openness with which she would talk about sex and also how unashamedly she would just talk about what she wanted and how she was going to get it and it didn't matter it has very um for want of a better phrase has very big dick energy this is around the same time, um, for, to put this into context, that 50 Cent was probably like post Eminem, the next big rapper that came out was 50 Cent. And it was just like, it was huge. But I remember thinking like, this is just gangster rap. Like I've heard this before, but also it's very misogynistic. It's very just like, yeah, I'm a man. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to use my penis. And it's going to get pleasure. And I don't care about you. Peaches kind of took that and flipped it and did it from a woman's perspective where it didn't matter what the man wants, the woman was going to get what she wanted. And to me, that was the coolest thing. So when I talk about an, an era of like, what pop music was politically dead, it wasn't that there was no political music out there. There was stuff like Peaches, which is not necessarily capital P, global politics, but very much kind of like interpersonal feminist-based politics as well. Um and it was just massive for me. I remember in the year, I think it was 1999, 
I was at home for the summer. I had to go home um, and work and earn some money to pay for the fees of repeating my second year. And when I got back to Glasgow at the end of that summer, everyone had just been to see Peaches playing a gig at Optimo in the sub club, which is another huge influence on me that I'll get into in another podcast, Optimo at the sub club, fucking hell. Um, but I was gutted that I'd missed Peaches and everyone was raving about what an amazing show it was. Um, and I've seen Peaches a couple of times live now. In 2015, she played right here, right in this very building that I'm currently recording this podcast in, Islington Mill, in the club space. It was a very limited entrance because in 2015, Peaches was huge. She was playing like the Academy and stuff like that, like to thousands of people. But the gig here at Islington Mill only had a 300-person attendance limit because that was as big as the club space downstairs was. And I remember, like, we got, me and my partner Joe got to see, and there was, like, a lot of our friends were there as well. I remember um, DJ Clipbay, Amy, <laughs> was there as well, and she got her tits out. Um, and literally, Peaches was, like, about three or four feet away from me because the stage downstairs in the club space at the time was, like, just right there in front of the audience. It wasn't even that high off the ground, really. So I remember in 2015 finally getting to see Peaches live and finally being, like, I'm finally seeing the show that all my friends got to see in 1999, which is this incredible rapper doing a thing that's just great, and it's right there in front of you in a very small space. I got to see that in 2015, and then last year, I did a bit of a pilgrimage to Glasgow to go and see Peaches touring the 20th anniversary. It was the 20th anniversary was obviously 2020, because it came out in 2000, but... You know, we all know what happened in 2020. So the tour the Peaches had planned for the 20th anniversary of Teachers of Peaches didn't happen until 2022. So I made the pilgrimage last year to Glasgow and I am so glad I did because honestly, the Teachers of Peaches live show tour that she toured last year, hands down one of the best live shows I've ever seen. Like I was expecting it to be good and I was like, this is going to be a laugh. This is going to be a great crack. Like she's Peaches, it's great. But, oh my God, me and my mate Bogue came out of it at the end. Like, I laughed, I cried, I moshed, I danced. Um, the only thing I didn't do was probably, like, you know, have a snog. <laughs> but, like, it was incredible. So, if you ever get a chance to see Peaches, if she ever does it again and she tours the Teachers of Peaches, it is one of the best live shows. Please go and see it. It is so good. But Peaches was a massive influence on the music I was making, and not just because of her vibe, and the type of music she was making. But the incredible thing about the Teachers of Peaches that I found so inspirational as an artist myself was that she recorded the entire album using one Roland MC505 groove box. That was where all the music that she produced on the album came from. One very lowly Roland MC505 groove box. I think it was the 505. Now, when I got, like I said in the last episode, in... At some point in around 1999, my mum uh, won 10 grand on the lottery and gave me a, a lump sum of £1,000, and I spent it all on music equipment. One of the first things I bought was an MC303, which was kind of like the slightly down the, the ladder um, scale version of the 505. Not quite as good, but it had all the same sounds and a lot of the same program capabilities. So taking a leaf out of Peach's book... I made a lot of my music just using the MC303 and a lot of the music, most of the music on and out of nowhere was me doing what Peaches had done for the Teachers of Peaches. I believe Teachers of Peaches had done on a four track as well. Could be wrong there, but 
I took that template of like, this bitch is so cool and she did all that using just one mm-hmm. of them on a four track. I can do that as well. And, you know, came out very, very different to Peaches. But there you go. Peaches had done it. And looking back on it now, I'm like, I fucking did it too. I'm quite proud of myself for what I did with this album, actually. I recorded it all. I was still using a four track at this point. Still just using a four track. Didn't get my first home computer until 2005 with Cubase, where I had like multiple tracks. So most of the music on this album is off four and two track mini discs. So listening back to it now, I'm quite proud of what I was able to achieve. So I've talked about the influences on And Out of Nowhere, which is the second album that I'm putting up in this year of albums, Um, my album of the month club. I've talked about the influence of Peaches on the music, and I've also talked about um, Jesus and Mary Chain and Sonic Youth. Um, Sonic Youth being something that I just straightforward covered on this album, covering their hit um, Youth Against Fascism, because I thought it was still relevant 10 years later, more, or however many years later it was. Um, also, I did another cover version on the album, which is the song Ghost Rider by the band Suicide, which were probably the first ever synth duo um, who came out of the kind of post-punk scene in New York. Um, if you're listening to this, I'm kind of assuming that you might know who Suicide are, but I got the first Suicide album in about 1999 or 2000, and it was just mind-blowing. It was like, this is the roots of so much music that I listen to. I got very, very heavily into that first Suicide album, which I think is just called Suicide. And I covered Ghost Rider. Um, and I remember when I actually released this album, so I released it in about 2007 through my net label, Little Rock Records. I sent a copy of this album to the fairly well-known British music journalist Everett True, who at the time was running a magazine called Spelling Mistakes Cost Lives. Um, and he reviewed it. I was like blown away. I was like, oh my God, he's actually reviewed my album. And he um, pointed out that like all my hipster credentials were intact because I had covered Sonic Youth and Suicide, which I guess at that point in like 2007, loads of people were then citing Suicide as a massive influence. But they were, I'm not going to deny it. It's minimalist electronica from an era before that even really existed as a thing. And it still sounds incredible to this day. So Suicide were a massive influence on me as well. But there is the biggest influence on And Out of Nowhere that it's shaped everything about this album from the noise to the melodies to actually even the shape of the album itself, which is nominally four tracks on side one and then two tracks on side B, the second of those tracks being very, very long, which my cover of Ghost Rider is about 12 minutes, so it's really quite long. The album and the band and everything, it was just they were just everything to me, still are, and it still is my number one favourite rock album of all time, bar none, bar none. It's the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat. 
if you've listened to the other podcasts or you've listened to the start of this, you probably gathered that like I'm Irish and I grew up in Ireland and I grew up in a very small town in Ireland, very far away from all the music that I was reading about in the press and very occasionally hearing through the radio or maybe something cool would pop up on MTV. But when I was about 12 years old, an older kid at school who saw that I was getting into cooler music asked me, have you heard the Velvet Underground? And I was like, no, who's that? And he gave me the Velvet Underground and Nico, and he gave me the best of the Velvet Underground. And I, this is back when we had tapes, and it was all on tapes and Walkmans. And I copied them, and it was just instant love, like really deep love. So, oh my God, this is amazing. It was the roots of so much of the music I was listening to at the time. But I think, in a way, what I subconsciously connected with the Velvet Underground for as well is how queer it is. It's really queer. Like, whichever way Lou Reed identified in terms of his sexuality, even if it was a phase, kind of like that, like kind of cool, even though I don't know, I don't know, but you know, that kind of like 70s, everyone was, was gay or bi-curious anyway. I really connected with the Velvet Underground. And what deepened that connection for me was I went back home to the small town that I grew up in in Ireland, went to the music shop, which very, very occasionally had some cool stuff. And... I noticed that they had another Velvet Underground album that I hadn't heard of. And I'd had Velvet Underground and Nico. It's like, that's such a classic album. I think everyone has heard that by now, right? And I had more Velvet Underground that I had taped off the best of the Velvet Underground. But then I saw this album called White Light, White Heat, and it was on cassette. And it was only about a fiver, which is like most tapes at that point were like eight or nine pounds. Um, so it being that cheap was like, and it's the Velvet Underground. I was like, instant, give me that. And I found it in my hometown music town. It was so hard for me at that point to come across decent music and be able to get my hands on the music that I wanted. But by some quirk of fate, my local music shop had a cassette of White Light, White Heat. Took it home, and I still remember that entire summer. I just listened to it over and over and over again. And if anybody takes anything away from this album I don't even know if you you don't even have to like and out of nowhere you know like I know that this music is not for everyone it's a very acquired taste most of the stuff I do is I think but if you have any takeaway from listening to my music and liking it if you've never listened to White Light White Heat the album in its entirety do it it is incredible it's just the birth of noise rock and this was years before that was even an idea Basically, what happened with White Light, White Heat is that the Velvet Underground had been managed by Andy Warhol and they had massive hype when they released their debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. Didn't do very well, so they had to go back to basics. And I don't even know if Andy Warhol was still working with them at this point. (coughs) It's possible that he had moved on to something you know, to his next big thing, which is my next album I'm going to be putting out, his next big thing. But Velvet Underground, there was still just four of them. Nico wasn't singing with them anymore. Lou Reed and John Cale were doing most of the vocals. They basically wrote a batch of songs, turned up to a music studio, a really low-rent music studio, um, plugged all the stuff in, turned literally turned everything as loud as it would go because at this point they were beginning to fall out as people so Lou Reed wasn't getting on with John Cale and I believe Sterling Morrison was also a bit like "Mm, they weren't they just weren't getting on as people so basically they were battling each other musically 
to create these songs to the point where the person who had been hired to engineer and produce this album walked out of the studio going, I don't have to listen to this shit and just said, you can record it yourselves. So they did. And they turned everything up to 10. Like literally everything went up to 10. You can hear it. It, the level of distortion going on in the album White Light, White Heat, it's just, for the time, it was absolutely groundbreaking. And just the vibe is incomparable. And if you're in any way a fan of noise rock and, like, even, like, quite extreme stuff, like, you know, Sono, Sun, how you say it, or, like, older stuff, like AIDS Wolf, or, like, early Sonic Youth, or, you know, noise rock, just rock that's, like, actually more about noise than it is about, uh, you know, major chords or whatever. Quite Like Why He is the absolute holy bible, because the thing was, the Velvet Underground made this album in 1968, and it, it, it was a flop, it was a complete flop, like, but the people who heard it, it just changed everyone's life, because they were like, I can't believe these people have got away with making this. It's incredible. So White Light, White Heat shares the same shape of the album to me. It's five shorter tunes. Some of them are a bit longer, some of them are shorter. And then one really, really epic long tune to end it on, which on an out of nowhere is my cover of Suicide's Ghost Rider, as I've already mentioned. But on um, White Light, White Heat is a song by the Velvet Underground called Sister Ray, which is just one of the most absolute epic epic rock songs that has ever been recorded like I absolutely love it it's one of those songs that like I don't listen to the album very much or very often because I know that when I do I just have to sit there and listen to it it's one of those experience albums and the song Sister Ray is just you just get sucked into them for 17 minutes battling each other like I don't know who's playing the organ it might have been John Cale but you can hear that them turning their own instruments up to try and drown out the other people over and over again. And the only thing that's holding it together really is Mo Tucker's very primitive drumming. And she keeps breaking it down and building it up and it keeps kicking in. And the lyrics are like, it's got lyrics about sucking dicks and stuff in that from Lou Reed. So it's like, it's faggy as fuck. Like it's so queer, but it's not high energy disco music. It's, angry noise, insects trapped in a jar in the baking sun, dying vibes because the band were falling out and they knew that this was kind of like the last iteration of this take of the Velvet Underground. Lou Reed would, would start replacing members quite quickly after this album was made and was a flop. So, like I said, if you take anything away from this, I know I'm rambling on now. This podcast is getting a bit long, but I wanted to keep this to the end because... The Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat, probably my favourite rock and roll album of all time. I found it when I was really young and it shaped my brain so intensely over the last, it's been about 30 years now since I've been listening to that album. I reflected it in And Out of Nowhere. Um, and another big shout out to Kepa Rasmussen, who did a lot of my visual work at the time, but also designed the uh, sleeve for it. It wasn't specifically for the cover of my album, but he had just done this collage of a bomb over a cityscape. And I was like, that's fucking cool. Can I have that? And he was like, yeah, sure, use it. And one of the really, really lovely references points back is that um, the, Ve the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat was one of those records that really didn't have a sleeve. Like, it didn't have an official sleeve. It had loads of different kinds of sleeves over the years. The most famous one is just plain black. But 
the one that I got on cassette in like 1992 out of my hometown random music shop was probably in a, in a like bargain bucket that I found it as well. Um, it had gorgeous, um, it's like a silhouetted, inverted silhouette picture of soldiers running into trench warfare. Um, but it's like abstracted. It's it's nice. It's not like gory or anything like that. And so to me, the cover even of And Out of Nowhere is a tie-in to the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat. And all I can say is, you know, if you are a fan of the White Light, White Heat album and you haven't listened to And Out of Nowhere yet, you know, give it a shot. You might like it. That's all I can hope for, really. Um, yeah, and I'm going to like cut this down now and I'm going to end it here. And if you have listened to me talking this amount of shite about my music and my history and all that stuff, thank you so much. Thank you for fucking joining me on this ride of like, you know, it's, 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 it's a trip. I said this in the last episode and I think it's going to continue being a trip as these things come on month by month by month. And I talk more and more about like my, the music I've been making and my history, my personal history and going into all of it. But if you've got this far in my podcast, like, oh my God, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate that this music that I've had kind of locked in my closet for years and years because my life has changed and I kind of not disowned it necessarily, but in a way had been like, oh, that was then I'm different now. Being able to rediscover it and knowing that I have some friends who are like, you've done all this, you know, and really spurred me on to actually just start getting this stuff out again and giving it the respect that it deserves. Um, I want to thank them, but also I want to thank you, the listeners, for coming on this journey with me. And I hope you enjoy the music. I apologize if you don't, um, but I hope you get something out of this. I'll be back next month with episode number three of my Album of the Month Club liner note podcast series. I'm really good and bad at names, as you can tell at this point. The next album is called The Next Big Thing. The And Out of Nowhere album and the the Next Big Thing albums are two companion pieces. I'll go into the story of how these albums came about in the next one. Um, but for now, I hope this doesn't make your ears bleed too much. And I hope that you like it. And thank you for listening. I am The Nihilist. I'll be back next month with another episode of my Album of the Month Club. This one is about my album And Out of Nowhere. It's currently on Spotify. If you're interested, go and listen to it. And if you do, thank you.